0: Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome back to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast here on the campus of Cedarville University. I'm Jared Piles, and with me is Dr. Robert McDole. We are revisiting our series on the basics of education, and we're at a point where we talk about content delivery, and we're very honored to have as our guest, Dr. Quentin Schultz. Dr. Q, how Dr. are you, Q, sir? Dr. Q,
1: that's right. Oh, thank you so much. for That was a sign of endearment that my students came up with, and I let them go. I say, as long as they got the doctor there, that gives me enough. <laughs> you know, the, the Q is okay. Yeah. We well, so. are glad to have you back on campus. And uh, recording with us in person this time. Yeah, it's wonderful. I call it incarnate to be in person. It's oh. incarnate communication. Okay, I like that a lot. Well,
2: we're recording this incarnate yeah. communication.
0: Yeah, it's cool because you you were um, one of our first. Ge- you were the first guest on our podcast. Oh wow! But we're at like, almost episode forty at this point. So we've wow. kind of gone. Congratulations! Full Thank yeah. you. So
2: fabulous. So this is part of our back to the basics series and. Uh we're talking today about content delivery and we thought we'd bring in someone who really has some experience and can speak to you know content delivery in their classes. Have you ever taught an online class? Just Oh yeah. So you can speak to
1: online oh, sure. and face to face. And I can oh, speak great. to hybrid as well. Oh excellent, excellent.
2: Yep. So uh how do you approach delivering uh your content in any one of those modalities?
1: Yeah, with great fear mm. because <laughs> The whole idea of content, which we could also say is information, immediately sounds boring. Mm. Why should I pay attention to that? It's just delivering information. It's shoveling information from point A to point B. So the students can get a grade in order to get a degree, to get a job. And the the system is kind of broken because if uh, we think as much about the delivery side as the content side, things start to look very different. Because we are the deliverers. We are people using various means, various technologies. We've got ideas about what should be, quote unquote, covered. And now we have to bring it into some kind of form that is going to engage and inspire people to learn, regardless of the subject. Why is this important? Why is this essential? Why is it going to make a difference in my life? Mm-hmm. And that's all has to do with this delivery part of it. So it's not just the content. We want to make sure the content is the best content uh, to serve that student. But then we want to pick a, a way of delivering that's really going to wake them up and grab hold of them and motivate them. That's where my passion is in making that happen.
2: So it sounds like you want to make that learning stick. You want it to make a difference.
1: And even before it can stick, you have to... Say, why is this relevant right okay so i I'm very big on using stories, examples or illustrations up front. so if I'm teaching a course let's say on family communication, I want to have an example of a family communication situation that the students will find relevant, interesting, engaging, maybe even a little provocative, saying, How would you deal with this situation mm. and then once I've set that need out there, we can begin to talk about how we would do that and what the relevant content is that we can bring to that problem. And then as the students start to fade at some point, I bring another example or illustration in. I think story, or narrative we could call it, is the single most engaging form of human communication. Sounds a lot like,
0: I know you have a public speaking background. I f- feel like that's maybe influenced a bit of how you deliver your content because you're talking about grabbing the attention, the hook that comes in. And then once you have that established, that's what a good public speaker will do. Brings the audience in and then you can start gradually delivering that content. Yeah, that I, th-
1: I think so. When, uh, when we look at uh, the teaching that has periods of time where there are some kinds of presentation, then I think it's helpful to look at it as a public speaking context. Yeah. There are other ways to teach particularly online where you just have short segments. We can talk about this more if you want in terms of online and I have some views on how to do how to record material for use online which is different than let's say being live. Uh, and most online courses do not work well when they're across like I taught a course online 2 weeks ago and I had students as far away as Japan. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, this is going to be the middle of the night for us. We can't do it. I said, okay, I'm going to record it for you. It's not going to be as good, but the recording is what's going to have to work for you. Sure. You know, you talk about face-to-face
0: versus online. How does that content delivery change? Or or, or like, for example, a live lecture in a face-to-face or in a synchronous online course
1: versus a recorded uh, lecture for asynchronous? Typically. A classroom time period is 50 minutes. Some of them are an hour and a quarter, sometimes an evening class with three hours. Evening class with three hours is completely different than a 50-minute in-person course. There, what you have to do is a variety of pedagogical techniques over three hours. You have to vary it a lot and get students involved in groups and all, all kinds of things. Variety is the key. Now, when we look at in-person, incarnate, as I call it, versus online, we immediately have a problem where the attention of people online is going to be problematic. Mm. They, there are going to be other things going on in their lives. I've been teaching online when you can hear babies crying in the background. You can hear people doing dishes or whatever's going on. I don't take that personally, by the way. They're busy, and they're trying to do the best they sure. can and keep everything together in their lives. But the the we have to have shorter presentations and focus just on the essentials, and then other things can be covered in the books. Other things can be covered in questions I would ask online that they have to write text responses to. Mm -hmm. But you just cannot do a lot of quote unquote content in real time Mm. with an online course. The attention span is not there for it. Sure. If you have something recorded too, you can. How to have the students
0: refer back to it. There's oh, yeah. always the replay value of it's great.
2: Small. So I'm a teacher or I'm a faculty member and I'm new to the game. Maybe I have a degree in biology, let's say, and I've just listened to you mm. and you've said narrative is one of the most powerful tools that you can use. Yep. Break it down for me in a sentence or two and give me the meat of what I need to know about how to form great narrative.
1: Wow. Terrific. So the big thing about narrative is you are telling a story that will almost immediately create anticipation. What's going to happen? Okay, anticipation, that's number one. Number two is identification. You have to tell the type of story that the audience can identify with or the students in the class can identify. So it's got to be relevant to them. It's got to create anticipation right up front. Now, where do we get the stories from? What kinds of stories? Teaching a biology class. Isn't that a great question? I mean, when when you think about it right away, you think of biology, it's information. It's information rich. It's shoveling a lot of information. It's got to be that way. There's going to be a second biology course that requires (laughs) the information from the first one, right? Right, So uh, there are a few different ways to look at this. I'm going to plug my book, Servant Teaching, because in Servant Teaching, I have a chapter on narrative where I talk about the different ways of getting narrative, and let me go through a few of those. One is narrative from our own life. So if we're teaching something in biology that relates to something going on in our life, let's say water, the state of water, or some disease that we've had, or whatever it is, but it's personal, Mm -hmm. and it relates directly to what we're going to be talking about to open with that. Uh, Second thing is, what are the stories— behind the content that we're teaching. And if we're teaching on a subject where there were studies that led to that truth or that information that the field, the discipline takes for granted, this is the way the body works in some way, mm-hmm. uh, how did that come about? Mm-hmm. So you can even start a class by saying we're going to be talking about this and let me tell you how that we found that out. And as soon as you start telling that story about how those researchers found out that information, uh, the students are interested. Try to make it as relevant as possible for the students, but it it makes a huge difference. You mentioned something, and
0: I want to go back to it. You mentioned focusing on the essentials. How does that relate with the objectives in your course? So like, are are you picking the essentials based on what you need to assess, or are you picking the essentials... Another
1: way, or what is it? Great, great, great. Oh, you guys are good. I love your questions. Well, we've come a long way since the first episode. So, So, uh, what are the essentials? Who decides what the essentials are? Does an accrediting agency? Does a department? uh, Do the people responsible for a course? Does the individual instructor? The way I look at it is we want the essentials that will be most valuable to a student five to seven years after graduation. Okay? So, anything that we're teaching and we're testing on, that the students are learning just now, just for that course, just for the grade, but will have no longer value to them, is probably not an essential. Mm. It might be important for a student who's taking the next course in cascading. For somebody in a gen ed course, probably not so much. What are those things? What are students most likely? It's somewhat guessing, but... There's some wisdom behind it in our own life experience. What are those things out there? And those are what I want to focus on. So, for example, I teach communication. I want the students to have a really solid understanding of what communication is. You can ask almost anybody around what communication is, and people can't give you a decent answer. Students coming into the class can't. Students graduating from a lot of courses in communication where the textbook never really clarifies it. Mm -hmm. They'll just say there are different theories of communication. Okay, that's great, but what is it? And so then I say to my students, this is it. In order to pass this course, you have to know this. Communication is the process of creating shared understanding. Creating shared understanding. If people do not understand one another, communication has not occurred. You may have affected somebody else. Somebody may have interpreted you a particular way. But communication, having in common an understanding, has not occurred. So that is an essential. And I can, in the different areas that I teach, I can go through and figure out with any given course, usually it's uh, enough of 20 to 30 essentials in a given course. With some repetition, going back to them, referring back when I'm covering something later and all, those are the things that I I, I know will serve the students five to seven years out. And then I give them an opportunity on a final exam. I'm known for this. One question on a final exam is, tell me something of value in your life that's made a difference that you've learned in this course that's not on the exam. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love that question. I love the answers I get. Interesting. I like that.
2: Yeah. That's uh, maybe innovative.
0: That's, that's very innovative. Yeah. yeah.
2: So on that line, what are some innovative delivery methods maybe that you've used or maybe you want to use?
1: I mentioned narrative as being so important. Mm -hmm. And many different ways I tie things to narratives. So let's say that we are dealing with public perceptions of something, maybe politics, what people think about what's going on in politics, who they like, who they don't like, whatever. Get right there to class right at the very beginning. I said, okay, we're going to do our research this class, and we're going to report back. What are the three most... important questions that we would want to ask to find out what current public opinion is on something. We write those down. We agree on them, hash it out We're very quickly. See, say, okay, everybody in the class, you divide into groups of three and run around campus and interview 10 people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs>
1: Anonymously. Yeah. And then come back with the reports. We're going to map it up on the board. People can do all of the uh, public opinion polls—they want we can read about them in the newspaper. But what happens when we do that ourselves on this campus? And what do we learn? And what happens is they learn about how difficult communication is, mm. because we ask the questions certain ways that we agreed on, and then we have to f- accept the answers according to the limitations of the way we ask the questions. Mm. And I say now, what you know is it's not just fake news; <laughs> it's f- <laughs> it's fake communication. It's fake public communication all over. Because almost everything reported to us comes through people who are asking only certain questions to themselves and other people. So I like to come up with assignments that get the students immediately out of the classroom to do something. Now, within class, I do a lot of innovative stuff with groups. I am incompetent at having students work in groups outside of class. Mm. I've tried over the course of my career, 40 years teaching in higher ed, to do that well. I never could do it. Students always complained. Mm. Certain students would do more work than others, and they felt it was injustice and all, so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, and so I said, okay, if I'm going to do groups, and I want to do groups, I want them to learn how to learn in groups. So, But I'm going to do it in class, but I'm going to provide structure. So the students come in, and I have one sheet with three or four discussion questions, typically related to the reading, that they have to then discuss. Uh, they have to come to some agreement as a group on how to answer something using the book. And sometimes I'll give them a little case study or something. And uh, I find those that kind of approach, man, it really works well. And then we have somebody from each group report to the rest of the class what they determined on it. Once you get students taking the content from a book and doing something with it, mm. it becomes much more immediate to them and they're much more likely to stick with them. So what do you do if the student comes to class without reading the textbook? Oh, some students do. Yeah. And I, I tell them uh, that up front. So what are we going to do as a class now if somebody's not ready for when we do one of these groups? Mm. That person has to admit up front that they haven't done the reading. Whoa. Yep. Because they're not contributing adequately and they have to pull the book out and start to look at it while the conversation is taking place. Little bit of guilt in there, yes. But actually, students get that, and they sure. want to be prepared. Mm. And then I say to them, and don't judge anybody who's not prepared, because you don't know what's going on in their life. Yeah, I cover that at the beginning of the semester when I say to students, uh, by the way, I will never evaluate you as human beings based on your performance and my academic performance in my class. Mm. Because you have things going on outside of class that sometimes are more important. And I did too. You know, I grew up with an alcoholic father, a paranoid schizophrenic mother. It was terrible. And there were days when I was totally unprepared in school and I was made fun of Mm. by teachers. I can still remember some of those events, how shamed I felt. Oh, it's just awful. And so I say to the students, try to be prepared. If you can't because of something else, that's okay, and you don't have to tell me or your classmates. But if you're just being lazy... Then you should feel a little guilt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that also, you're
0: also creating an accountability amongst the students in your class. Right. So you're building this community by, by doing that. That's, that's great. So you mentioned group work being difficult in an online course. Outs-
1: outside, yeah.
0: Outside of it. So outside of the face to face
1: or in an online course? Group work for me has been a problem with face to face classes. If they're working outside of class together, I've never been able to manage that well. Hmm. If if it's an on class, online class, some of the worst experiences I've had educationally have been group work with online classes.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: That uh, very difficult, where people started sending me emails saying that so and so wasn't doing their work and so on, gossiping to me about other people and all. And these, and even with adult students, are uh, uh, you know, older. Sure. Very very difficult for me to manage. Then some of the other groups work. Famously, they seem to be mature enough or have enough life experience in working in groups that they can do it. But you can't really monitor well what's going on. You can monitor the product of what they're doing if they're posting it online or sending you a sample, but it's very difficult. I have not figured that out well at all. And I continue to learn with the online, and I find that students are different at different institutions, and the cultural differences among students provide a real challenge online yeah, more so than in person. Yeah. In, in person, people really try to get along well and understand each other and so on, mm-hmm. even though they may have different ethnic or racial backgrounds. But when you get online, a lot of it moves into the area of stereotypes yeah that's I mean that seems like that's a struggle. Like there's such a push for especially with
0: since COVID, there's been such a push for online education. And it seems to be the weakest link amongst it is student-to-student collaboration. Because like you said, there's stories like that where it's someone's pulling on the weight, different time zones, being able to meet is just difficult to do. It's such an integral part of building that community, like the community of inquiry, Mm -hmm. talking about the student-to-student interaction. And that best way of doing that, it seems, based on the face-to-face perspective, is doing that group
1: collaboration stuff. Right. So. And if I require students to have a certain number of posts per week in response to other people's postings, which is a common thing online, mm-hmm. what I find is that often the students will do the required number of posts, but they won't do those posts very well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There'll be something that they could post if they hadn't even taken the course. Yeah. They follow a formula. Mm-hmm. I
0: agree. Here's my response. You know, <laughs> I agree with what you said and the copy and paste. So good. Said. That
2: was so good. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you, you bring that up because uh, I have been in, you know, I've been in online for now over 20 years, uh, as well as teaching. I have taught face-to-face, believe it or not. And it is a challenge laying the ground rules how this communication is supposed to take place. I have found to be very, very helpful. And another thing, I have found tools that can help me peer into and see what's going on and stick my oar in, so to speak, mm. when I see that someone's not communicating well or they're, they're not you know, interacting in a way that's really beneficial to others or themselves.
1: First time I taught online, I went to a guy uh, at a school other than the one that I was teaching at at the time because he was well-known for doing online really well. I'd heard that from a number of people. Mm. And I said, can I co-teach with you?
2: Mm.
1: I want to get into this right. I don't want to just go bumbling forward. And most schools that have said we're going to do a lot online have not provided adequate instruction for how to do online well in my experience. Mm -hmm. So he said, yeah, we'll we'll co-teach it. I'm going to make you the primary one, but then I'll be your backup and help you along. And I said, great. And he really was spectacular at this. And I learned so much, but what I wanted to say was something that he told me and he told me how to do it. He said, you're going to have a problem connecting with a lot of students personally, Mm -hmm. always going to seem distant, And the more distant it is, the less motivated they will be. Mm -hmm. If they feel like they know you and can identify with your situation as the teacher and they want to please you, they're going to be more motivated. I said, great, how do I do that? He said, okay, you're going to call every student before the course begins on the phone. Introduce yourself, and you're going to go through a little survey of questions, just a a few things. Uh, Tell me about your life, what's going on, what Mm -hmm. you do outside of teaching, and so on. And he said, by the time that class begins, it's going to be a whole different beginning Mm -hmm. than if you didn't do that. Now, if somebody's teaching 90 students, you can't do that. But I just had a conversation the other day with somebody when I told him this technique, which I used with all my online teaching. He said, well, I have too many students in course. So what I do is send out a little survey form Mm -hmm. in advance and ask him to fill it out and send it back. And then I breeze through those and quick response on email. I thought, that's great. That's great. So to connect up front. No, I think that's
2: both are really excellent ways to to build rapport and build a connection. Uh, Because when you know someone, it's a lot harder to just dismiss them. And I think that's what happens so often in the online space, whether it be social media. But, you know, you're going to get burned by someone who's just going to fly off the handle for no apparent reason, didn't really read what you wrote. And the next thing you know, you're, you're getting a verbal attack with all caps, right? Because <laughs> we know that that means yelling on the internet, right? <laughs> uh, Somebody sending you a, a, an email or a message in all caps uh, because they misunderstood what you were trying to
1: say. It's great when you're teaching a course in communication and the communication is out of control. Okay, it's just wonderful. <laughs> the very principles that you're teaching are being violated yes. day in and day out on the bulletin board.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's been a It's been an ongoing thing. Another one that's been helpful and and again, you have to craft it well is peer review. Yeah, uh, and there are some really good articles out there on on peer review being done well.
1: Well, let me tell you what i have have fallen back on. Rather than scores, rankings. Tell me in your group, one to five, those who have contrib- contributed most to least.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And I have found that students will be honest with me that way. If I ask them to, with whatever the rubrics are, come up with an individual number for each other student, they will tend to inflate everything, and almost everybody becomes fantastic, even though I know they weren't. Right. So ranking is my fallback. That's mm-hmm. brilliant.
0: I feel like you've answered this. There are different questions, but I want you to give you an opportunity to really hone in on the servant teaching aspect. How does servant teaching
1: make an impact on the content that you're communicating to your students? As a servant teacher, I want to present content in a way that will be relevant, engaging, sometimes inspirational, to move them along. I'm not presenting content apart from what I perceive the students that is my audience to be. Mm. So it's audience focus. It's on serving them. And I always have to keep in mind, does the material as I'm going to present it, sometimes to clean up problems that the textbooks create, Mm. is it really going to connect with them where they are at? And if it's not going to connect with them where they're at, then I'm, I, I'm not going to be successful. So it, servant teaching means really student-oriented teaching. Yeah. Now, some people say to me, well, you're just trying to be easy. You're trying to make it easy for students that way. No, I'm just trying to connect with them. Hmm. As in all good communication, the more you understand about your audience and the more you can organize and phrase whatever you're presenting or use extra visuals and so forth for them, the more they're going to learn. Mm. They're going to get it. So now that gets tough if you have a very heterogeneous student body. Mm -hmm. And I have made some terrible mistakes of presenting material that I thought was right on track, and yet it was really off track for people from widely different cultures. Mm. And I have actually offended students badly Mm. uh, because I wasn't taking into account their backgrounds. So... uh, That's a special dilemma that we face, and there's more sensitivity to that now than there was when I started teaching in 1976, I believe it was, Mm. 75. So there's a variety among students. You have to take that into account. But it's also a benefit where if they can give you help in front of the other students in understanding where they're coming from, and how, let's say, some communication advice I just offered wouldn't work in their culture. And if, if they can share that with the, then we're all learning more. Yeah, right.
0: One more question What advice would you share with a faculty member who feels like they need to maybe revise or revive the content that they're, or maybe like their content delivery? Like maybe they've been listening to this episode and said, man, I really, I'm really struggling and as far as the, how I deliver the information. What is one piece of advice you would give them?
1: I am a big advocate of sitting in on other people's classes. I don't think we do it enough. Mm. I also don't think we co-teach enough. Well, years ago, with new colleagues coming into my department, one of the first things I would do is if we had two sections of the same course, we were each teaching one say, let's combine them and co-teach. And I'll do this. you do that. We'll give each other some feedback, see what works, what doesn't work. Uh, so I think picking up material from one another, uh, techniques, skills, approaches, attitudes even, on how you go about encouraging discussion, let's say. There's a whole attitude with, you know, you, you can ask questions that will just shut down communication because of the mm. way they're asked. It yeah. could be asked differently. So we learn this from one another. We should. I think education is community. And it's not just the community of the students. It's a community of the faculty, students, and staff together. So uh, seek out other people that you can pick their brain, monitor what they're doing, have them come into your class and make suggestions about different ways of approaching things. That's good.
2: It works in online too. It does. It's a good best practice that has been around for a while. Yeah. In terms of training faculty for online, which I've done a little bit of. And uh, having them actually go through a, another person's course or be in that course with them as they're teaching uh, and, and being involved in it and they work together on it has been extremely helpful.
0: Well, Dr. Schultz, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. This has been a really good interview. I appreciate you taking the time out to meet us face to face and hopefully we keep this conversation. Incarnate. Yeah, the incarnate. Incarnate, yeah. Incarnate. But yeah, thank you so much for, for coming uh, in.
1: My pleasure. guy. You two are great, doing a great job on this. And this is better than the first one that I recorded <laughs> with you. Wow. I love it. So you're I, growing. I love that I feedback. I feel so good. Better communication. communication thank shared you so. understanding. <laughs>
2: yes.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Transform Your Teaching podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe and review our podcast, whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Be sure to check out our blog at cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog and be sure to check out our coffee drops.
2: Thanks for listening.